Welcome to the Scholars and Storytellers podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers at UCLA. This episode features a conversation between Dr. Mary Helen Imordino Yang and Lisa Henson. Dr. Imordino Yang is a professor of education, psychology, and neuroscience at the University of Southern California. She studies the psychological and neurobiological development of emotion and self-awareness and connections to social, cognitive, and moral development in educational settings. Lisa Henson is the CEO and president of the Jim Henson Company, overseeing all television and feature film production from early development through post-production. Henson is currently in production on the Netflix series The Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. Hi. Well, here we are. Hi, Lisa. <laughs> How are you? It's nice to meet you. Uh, nice to meet you as well. <laughs> yeah. Why, why don't you start by telling me about yourself? What do you do? Um, well, I'm the CEO and the president of the Jim Henson Company, so... Um, in addition to running a small family-owned entertainment company, I'm also an executive producer of television shows. So, um, you know, I have my, my everybody in our company has to do two jobs because we're such a tiny company. And so mine that. is kind yeah. of uh, producer and executive. Um, I produce quite a few children's shows. Um, we've done a lot of preschool shows Five of them had STEM curriculum, oh, so wow, you know, cool. we've done a lot of educational programming. My most recent production that aired uh, is Dark Crystal Age of Resistance on Netflix, which is for you know all Woo-hoo! family. <laughs> that's for all family. Anyway, we're very, very proud of it. Yeah. So that's me. Okay, great. Uh, well, so you can know a tiny bit about me. Um, I'm a professor at USC. In uh, uh, no, just kidding. In, uh, <laughs> you, know, you invited me um, <laughs> in uh, education, uh, psychology, and neuroscience, and I, I basically study the way that people make meaning, right? The way that we construct stories out of what we witness, what we live, what we experience, and how those stories become the basis for kind of the minds that we grow, how they're connected to and grow our physical bodies and minds and brains, mm-hmm. as well as our our social relationships and health, the way that our cultural experiences kind of shape the way in which we tell ourselves those stories and what that means for the kind of minds we develop, and, and ultimately uh, what this all means for education, what it means for how young people learn and grow and develop, and uh, what kinds of people we want them to think like and be like, what kinds of dispositions of mind and values and beliefs we want people to engage with, and, uh, and how do we provide the kinds of fertile grounds for that kind of engagement among our youth. That's what I do. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> That's amazing and fun. extremely relevant, particularly for this organization, which is putting scholars and storytellers together. Yeah, for sure. You're not just a scholar, but you're a scholar of storytelling. Yeah, so that's, that's kind of true. That's amazing. kind of true. <laughs> sometimes I even have to tell stories because I like make people uh, uh, you know, feel reactions to all kinds of stories and ask them like with true stories from all over the world. Ask people how they feel and then look at what's going on in their brain, what's going on in their body, uh, uh, and how their brain and their body activations are actually coming together to predict some kind of experience that they're having, some kind of emotional experience they're having, like inspiration, and looking at cultural and other kinds of developmental factors that influence how those come together, like how somebody knows they're inspired, what that means, what it means in China, what it means in the U.S., what it means amazing. in young people and older people. <laughs> like, isn't that amazing? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, no, so, so you, actually, you actually do it, too. So, 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 so tell me a little bit about... Um, 
why you do your work. Like, what does it mean to you to be a person who produces programming for children or young people or families? Oh, it's really interesting. Um, you know, there's a lot of, there is a lot of complicated negativity in the world, you mm -hmm. know, so one thing just on a very simple level is we hope to bring joy to the world. Yep. And in times like now, you know, we want to bring hope to kids because there's yeah. a lot of depression, anxiety, and reasons to be so, so that, you know, if, if the shows that we uh, present actually give people, you know, hope, comfort, mm -hmm. joy, th that's a very simple goal. You know, we would like to do that. Um, as an educational, um, enter, you know, enter educational television producer, you know, we've also under, we've undertaken to actually teach science and geology yeah. and, cool. and you know, all these different kinds of the scientific method, which we taught through Sid the Science Kid to preschoolers. You know, so we've also done a little bit of like real teaching through these shows. Yeah. So there's a little bit of the kind of the softer um, social emotional kind of learning that is in almost everything that we do. And then certain shows are like for real educational where they, they could be tested afterwards. And we have done those kind of, you know, that kind of testing to see that those shows are effectively you know, content. conveying content, yeah. Yeah, although I would push back just a little <laughs> and say that you're undercutting yourself, you're selling yourself short because teaching people how to have hope is actually a really fundamental lesson in, in young people's lives. And in education, traditionally, we've thought of that as like the soft, mushy stuff we don't really, you know, care about because it's the like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like the facts about geology. You know, I'm a scientist. I love facts and, and, and I love geology. It so happens, too. Um, but, uh, but actually, what we're learning in our work is that your work is actually more important than you think it is, maybe even potentially, because in building hope in a young person, what, it, what does that actually look like cognitively? I what know, does that and we actually entail? want more tools to know how to do that, which is why it's so interesting, this kind of intersection between academia and, and uh, entertainment, yeah. because if we, have, if we have the desire to, you know, to, to bring more hope into the world through our work, we could use tools, you know, yeah. and the research that gets exposed, that we're exposed to through, you know, Yalda and the center and, and, and other, any other organization that puts research in front of us, we actually do, when we can, pay attention to that. Yeah. And if it does give us tools, we will try to use them. So here's one insight. Maybe <laughs> useful, maybe not. We can try it on, okay? Um, well, one thing to notice about an emotion like hope is that you never see it directly in front of you. There is no thing you can look at and say, aha, hope in the flesh, right? Mm -hmm. Or in the world. It, it doesn't exist as a thing. It's an interpretation of the broader intentions or basically hope itself is a story. It's a story you tell yourself about possible spaces in the future that don't exist now, mm. right? And so what we found neurologically about um, you know, for example, in teenagers, we work a lot with uh, middle and later uh, adolescents, so starting at mm -hmm. age like 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, follow them into young adulthood. And what we find is that in young people, 14 and 15 years old, when they're interacting with stories in ways that, so we just show them true stories about real teenagers from all around the world, many of whom are extraordinary people, mm -hmm. none of whom are famous, right? We try to make oh, it very... Malala. 
Yes, yeah, so like Malala. <laughs> She's so, famous. So famous. Uh, so Malala was used before she became famous, oh. and now we don't use her anymore because people know who she is. Oh, right. Uh huh. We used her in the Nova special only because that's on TV, and we can't use these private people. She's been in a Nova special. Oh yes, <laughs> been in a Nova very nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so what I was going to say is, what we can see is that individual differences in how kids infer or construct a sense of hopefulness out of a story. That doesn't itself say, please be hopeful. It just says, here's a Malala, who, and here's the amazing like grit and perseverance, and here's the story of her life and what she's doing anyway. And when a young person has the cognitive and affective ability to interpret that story for not just it, like what's happening to her, what's right, what's wrong, what you hope for, how you would want to help her, what it, what's fair, what's not fair, what's bad, what's good, but to transcend that push that story down and say, wait a minute, what's the bigger, broader mm. lesson that I can extract that's true anywhere in the world? That isn't about Malala or some other teenager situation, but Malala or another teenager exemplifies that situation. And there's this bigger, broader sort of, you know, interpretation or inclination or proclivity I could bring with me and use that as a kind of value system for interacting with the world and my own mind outside of this story. That's what hope is. Right, because you can't look at Malala and say, "I see, I see hope in her." Yeah. Hope is an interpretation that you construct about her possibility mm-hmm. that, by definition, doesn't exist yet. So, I think in your programming, as you're bringing emotions like hopefulness together with scientific content or other kinds of storylines, right? Potentially, what you're really doing is something that neuroscience is really just starting to dabble in, which is understand something about the integration of our of our factual knowledge our kind of ability to think about disciplined concepts like you know like mm-hmm. geology or whatever we want it to be um, and to imbue that thought with these big broad values based emotions that are about what could be possible in the future that's where innovation comes from right that's where inspiration innovation creativity come from they come from that realization process so I would say that I'm getting even though, so hopeful yeah, just listening to her. Right. Yeah, even though you think you're just telling a story and then sometimes you're managing to get in some content, what you're actually doing is giving kids practice at learning how to infuse a sense of broader values and mm-hmm. beliefs about what's possible into their scientific knowledge. And that is like the holy grail of what we want young people to be able to do, right? Because if they can just regurgitate the facts when you ask them. Who cares? Like, what is that for? I don't know. They don't know. And they're all telling us, we're bored. We don't know what this is for. Like, you know what I mean? Like, why do we have to do this? Right? Like, how often have teachers heard this, read that? Right? And oftentimes the teachers don't know either, which is really sad. Um, you know, we just don't set them up to know. Um, because we don't build content that actually shows them what it's for. And you're building content that shows them what it's for. So I'd say, cool. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Hey, if you're, we were just told, if you're just tuning in, oh, yeah. we're discussing storytelling and empathy. Um, so, huh, I've, um, I've, I've, I'm always very interested, you know, through this center, I've been exposed to quite a bit of, like, specific, the results of specific studies. Yeah. Like, is there a specific study that you would want to, you know, talk about for those who are viewing that are oh, viewing yeah. this session, like where because people love the results of research. Yeah, you know, that's I true. I love the results of research. Yeah, I love the results of research. That's why I do what I do. Wait, and I'm coming do, in. Oh, she's coming in. Hello, everybody. So, the one thing that I think and what I took away from what 
you said when I saw you first and right now, and I wonder also if how we can do this, and it would be great to think about this, yeah. is like what, and I think, honestly, I think storytellers just intuitively do a lot of what scientists mm-hmm. study. I mean, That's right. you imbue things with hope. You try to get people to identify with the characters so that right. they learn better, mm-hmm. right? And scientists and communication scholars study that stuff. But it's it doesn't sink until there's sink in without that identification mm-hmm. mechanism. That's right. So you hear the geology, the hope is connected to you, mm-hmm. right? It's like, I can do that. I can be that. So how do we infuse that? I think geology was kind of like maybe a bad example. Well, <laughs> although yeah, you know, the, although example. there is a fair amount of hard science that we teach, like we'll teach in dinosaur train. We're mm-hmm. teaching actual paleontology and geology, yeah. but of course, you know, there's so much more that goes into any preschool program. Right. For instance, that show involves a sort of uh, blended family with an adoptive uh-huh. child who happens yes. to be a T-Rex who is adapted, adopted by a Pteranodon family. I don't and know how that have, goes. You know, <laughs> does that usually turn out well? Have you Always. done any research? Well, okay, they frequently speculate what's going to happen when they get To old. be big? Yeah. T-Rexes? Um, okay. But then, you know, and we have so much in that show is, for instance, about meeting... Um, in their case, species that are different from themselves, but that's all, you know, that's all metaphoric for meeting people that are different course, from you and right. being very curious about people, asking respectful questions, right. engaging in dialogue where you really learn about the other person. And, you know, we model kids who are endlessly curious and very positive in their view, and they nev- they don't want to stay home and just do the same thing every day. They yeah. want to go out into the world yeah. and, and meet course. people. So, you know, so much of what we do with preschoolers is, is um, more, in, more infused by curriculum, by, um, by consultants, mm-hmm. by a mm-hmm. uh, great amount of thought that mm-hmm. goes into mm-hmm. what, are we, what are we teaching? Because we know as, as preschool producers, we know that we have an outsized role in That's in right. the kids in the kids lives yeah, they're not yet even in a right. school they're not with teachers mm-hmm. yet um, and our and our characters that we're creating may be almost like the first playmates for some of these children mm-hmm. if you have a 2 year old that watches word party those little animals on that show might almost be like playmates for that 2 year old because they are not yet in a play group or in preschool. So, you know, we think a lot about first friends and how we're, how we're creating, um, you know, friends that the, that the kids in the audience can relate to. But it all changes a little bit as they get older. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, fascinated by mm-hmm. research that you've mm-hmm. done with 14 and 15-year-olds mm-hmm. and teenagers because a lot of what we do for older viewers doesn't have a research component to uh-huh. it or it doesn't have consultants yeah. working right. on it. Um, and I think the industry is only kind of just shifting towards bringing in a bit of research into yeah. what we do for, for older viewers. Hi, listeners. We hope that you're enjoying this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us and share it with your friends. Your support is greatly appreciated. Now, back to the conversation. Submitted by Josanne Buchanan. Um, since experiences and effective responses such as hope and even joy are mm-hmm. so challenging to operationalize, how can we ensure that researchers and, and concept creators remain on the same page when collaborating and that they produce constructive insights that are better that are reflected in better media? Mm. 
That's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think the most the uh, the operational question there for me is remaining on the same page because mm-hmm. so if we do work with researchers or if we work with consultants, mm-hmm. very often it's like a one shot thing. Yeah, like we're showing yeah. somebody a script and then we're soliciting advice and then and then we don't really talk again. Mm-hmm. So you know when you say how. How are they going to remain on the same page? I would say, I, you know, sometimes I don't know if I've remained on the same page because I've gone off and done my thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in some cases, and there, I saw there was a question about, um, about uh, brain development. Or, but, um, you know, sometimes when we have a, a very specific thing, like we have worked with one consultant with regard to autistic behaviors. Um, And we showed her, like, we showed her things at multiple stages Uh because we wanted to be very careful. So, you know, she looked at the script, she looked at the animatic, she looked Mm -hmm. at the finished thing, she checked how the voices came out. That's incredible, for us, very, very unusual. Mm -hmm. You know, usually it's kind of a a one-shot, like, passing Mm -hmm. it under somebody's Mm -hmm. eye. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I would say... uh, to the question that what's really important, and you kind of alluded to this, is that uh, the researchers and the producers are sharing a common goal. Mm-hmm. So to really think about, and this is the same question that comes up in educational content, and really this is the same. Well, you know, how do we build together what we would want success to look like? What are we aiming for together? Mm-hmm. And then thinking about the different perspectives that co- come to that. And so in the case of uh, programming for an autistic child, right, you could see that there's a very sort of um, um, specific kind of profile that you're aiming for, and you have a very clear goal of how you're trying to help that child engage with the social world and engage with themselves. And so an expert in that is able to kind of walk you through potentially the steps. And I think one of the big tragedies slash opportunities of our modern um, work is that um, we are so willy-nilly when it comes to teenagers, usually. There's not a lot of good research that actually grounds teenagers' learning and their feelings and their emotions. Um, And yet we know that this is one of the periods of life, if not the period of life, when emotions and sociality are absolutely critical factors in Mm -hmm, brain development. mm -hmm. They are hypersensitive and hyperlabile around them, right? And highly vulnerable. So along with this amazing sensitivity and openness to emotions Mm -hmm. and and, uh, sociality, and all that change in their relationships, there's also this, um, there's this vulnerability, which you alluded to really early on. With, with that amount of flexibility comes some kind of vulnerability, and that kids can get anxiety and depression at higher rates now than at ever mm-hmm. at any other time in their life. Um, except the other time in life when you have a huge hormonal shift, which is um, in the transition to parenting. Right? You also get postpartum depression. All these kinds of mm-hmm. things come up again, right? And it's not an accident because the brain is being played with, right, and remodeled during those stages. Um, and so what I think is that we really need to start bringing our programming, because right now the programming you're doing, I imagine, is done with excellent intentions and with sort of intuitive sense of what engages kids, what they like, and what would you like for them to know. But we have that much more clearly mapped out developmentally in the little kids. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm really interested in doing in my work is exactly what you're talking about. How do we map out what that really looks like in adolescence? And then how do we start to work together with content creators like you mm-hmm. who do things that are really um, you know, uh, innovative, right, and really flexible. You, know, you can really invent things, right, um, in ways that will 
strategically provide these opportunities for reflection that adolescents are engaging in. So if I can give like one big um, takeaway message about adolescent brain development and cognitive and social development, it's that they're moving in adolescence from this, and you'll kind of recognize this if you've ever parented an adolescent, right? They're moving from this kind of action-oriented, here and now kind of concrete interpretation of the world. You know, what does it mean mm -hmm. to be a friend? It means share my cookie and be nice and notice when you're sad and give you a hug and write. But what does it mean when you're uh, an adolescent? It means to have a certain intention of mind behind those things, not just to do them, right? It's something, it's an identity that you hmm. bring with you around in the world. Yeah. yeah. And so knowing that, what we found neurologically is that building that kind of sense of self that's internal like that, that really is all about what adolescents are really working on, um, is it requires this kind of reflective stance. You actually, we've actually showed that kids and you know young adults even like shift their eye gaze away. Like they close their eyes, they look away, and they kind of close their posture when they're. Mm becoming inspired about these stories. It's almost like Malala's amazing, she's really great. I wish I could help her, blah, blah, She makes me realize that, you know, education is a, well, it's a human right, right? Like, they, they, they come away and they come back. It's like, don't, don't interrupt me with what you look like. I'm trying to think about what it means. And so that's one little, like nugget for you potentially, if it's useful, is that That's switching from yeah. you know from this like what it looks like and what people do. Yeah, those are cool. <laughs> um, what people do um, to um, the sort of reflective stance they take, giving people space and time and structured opportunities to think about what does this mean, or to watch characters think about what does that mean. Because building an ability to make meaning is actually what adolescence is, is really about. And actually, I mean, that's also what I was so fascinated. I love that you put this here for yourself to yeah, lean so on. Cute. Go ahead, do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're just tuning in, you are here with Lisa Henson, Mar Mary Helen, Ian, and I, Yang. thank you. Yep. Um, and you, um, they're talking about storytelling, empathy, hope, joy, and all of the ways that the research informs us and the ways that storytelling informs us for young people all the way preschool to adolescence. Yep. We have a giveaway of these amazing books from the Jim Henson Company. We, thank you, Lisa and um, Jim Henson Company. It, first 30 people to sign up for our newsletter. Um, link is in the Facebook comments. We will um, pick one of you and you will get this. And I just want to say one more thing. So, so one of the things that she just talked about, which I'm really interested in, Lisa, and I'm hoping at some point we can develop this, yep. is creating this white space, right. this we are now in a place where, especially for tweens and teens, mm. where there's a second screen, mm -hmm. right? And there's, you watch the content, and there's a, they're looking at a second screen. Mm. And what's happening on that second screen, if that could create a place for the white space, for the place to reflect, to connect to the content somehow, could you see a world where that might work? And <laughs> leave it to you guys. Oh, you don't want to just, just, leave, just leave, leave the books there. Yeah. <laughs> leave the books there. Um, well, it's very interesting because generally I think kids are in control of their own second screen. So I'm not, I'm, when, when people have tried to kind of create programming and create a companion second screen, it's not clear that you can get people to, to do the two things together. Because, but you're right that kids are, they have a second screen going most of the time. Most of the time when they're watching television, they also have... They're, they're, they're texting with people, they have the homework open or whatever else is happening there. Um, and to be honest, I, we, I haven't put 
literally till this minute any thought into what, how can we encourage kids to use the second screen constructively while, while they're engaging with media? But that is, a, that is a very interesting question. I mean, from a research perspective, this isn't my research, but this is the research that exists. Um, the research would pretty clearly suggest what you just said, which is that um, multitasking, which is really having mm-hmm. two screens at once uh, and other things, um, it really undermines the ability for you to fully perceive and you know, think about the two things. And ironically, what the research suggests is that the more a person believes that they are able to do both at once, the more their cognition is actually, uh, you know, lessened. It's yes. slowed down. I think Your I've IQ seen that research. Down. There we go. There's some uh, research you I've actually two, seen. Because, <laughs> right, exactly, because it suggests that people who are aware of how their cognition is being slowed down by having two mm-hmm. know it. But if you're not aware of it, you're potentially slowing down even more. Um, because you're not managing it well. So I don't know that second screen would be the best way to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but some other forum that trades off, for example, maybe if the second screen, when it comes on, the other one pauses or something, I don't know. But a way for people to discuss or reflect upon or have a whiteboard for you know, journaling about or noting about or mm-hmm. uh, you know, snipping pieces and sharing them and then like reflecting further on how that piece is meaningful to them, something like that. That could be potentially helpful. Mm-hmm. That would have to be in a classroom, though. That wouldn't be like what kids would spontaneously do. We were we're actually thinking about doing research around cognitive boost and cognitive load, and like, is there a cognitive boost when you um, if you were looking at the second screen and it has something to do with the content and the character? So you know, there's this thing called parasocial relationships. Have you ever heard that term? Never. So you know, I hadn't either. <laughs> it's basically identifying with the character. Um, and young people have these re- imagined relationships with the actors, and you know, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's like what kids have done through all of time, Beatles, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, is there a cognitive boost that you could sort of because it sort of gives that extra point of where they connect to the character um, that might actually amplify the feelings? I don't know. It's uh, mm. it's so funny. I mean, everybody watches with a second screen in yeah. a way. Like yeah. even I do, I and do. I I'm much more conscious recently of how much I engage with Wikipedia and IMDb all the time that I'm watching television or a movie. Oh. And I don't um, do that. I guess I'm yeah. Weird. So people do okay. their own thing. You know, yeah. like everybody has their own thing that they okay. do, and that why that's why I feel like it might be hard to, you know, direct people to use second screen. A specific way, because it's actually highly reflective of who you are as a person. I see. How, what, where are you? What are you doing on your second screen? Um, anyway, should we do another question? Yes, yeah. and look who it's from. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to read it? Sure. This one is from Alan Arkatov, my close friend and buddy and colleague from USC. What is affective neuroscience research teaching us about the impact of new technologies and social media in altering how adolescent brains process educational? Content. Oh, Alan, you had to ask that question. Huh? <laughs> uh, I'll start. I mean, the bottom line is we don't know yet. We really don't know yet. Uh, at this point, we're trying to figure out uh, how young people come to content, right? Mm-hmm. Like the research to this point is kind of like we give you this and we see what happens and we see what you remember, right? As compared to this switch in perspective that I try to take in my work. 
that looks at like if I if I provide you with this, what do you do with that? Mm-hmm. Like, show me you, right? Tell me how you feel about this. What do you think about this? Like, why? You know, give me some ideas for how your community could be a better place if you ruled the world. What would you do, right? Um, and by doing that, we're trying to understand how people come to make meaning, and then how we can shape that or support that through different kinds of educational practices or different kinds of opportunities we give kids. So what we do think is that, and neuroscientifically we've seen this also from some of our work, that if you give kids structured opportunities to reflect with, for example, another person in a really deep way about the meaning they're making of a story or even of their own life story. Mm -hmm. So we have work that's done with a group called Sages and Seekers, which does beautiful work with young people and senior people. And they put adolescents Mm. and elderly people together uh, you know, and they let them speed date in these really great, right? And they match themselves up into partners who work together and they basically tell each other their life stories. It's not a mentoring program. I love that. Program. Yeah. I, love that. I want it's, to listen to all of them. <laughs> it's amazing. I know. And, the, and the, the, the things that happen in that space are just incredible. Um, where the elderly people are, you know, revisiting their life and building a kind of coherent narrative about why their life is worthwhile, Mm -hmm. right, and what they've accomplished and learned and what they have to give back to the young people. And then the young people are imagining a future life that doesn't exist yet and trying to invent it, right? And by pairing those together, we learned something about Alan's question, which is that it takes skills for really reflecting and kind of empathically resonating, I like to call it, with other people um, or other imagined people, you know, um, people who've written books or people who've given you information to think about or movie stars even, right? Storylines that give you fodder for kind of re-envisioning the possibility space for yourself and, uh, and then give you the opportunity to kind of build from that, sort of springboard off that to invent a, invent a sense of self. And when we hmm. see kids doing this in the scanner, and we know they're doing it because they're telling us about it in interviews, right? We actually see activations all the way down into their brainstem, like right above the spinal cord in a place called the medulla that if you uh, get brain damage there, we can't even keep you alive on life support, right? We see this part activating. It's like you actually become more alive through this process. Amazing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. It's sometimes I get a little bit um, confused even in these conversations about, you know, research into storytelling and storytelling, like mm. fantasy storytelling. Mm-hmm. For instance, I majored in folklore and mythology so cool. when I was in an undergrad. And of course, we were studying uh, folk tales, fairy tales, you know, oral storytelling, yeah. how stories are passed along. Um, semiotics and you know but it was really about stories outside of yourself and then now there's so much going on in psychology about people telling their own story or young people taking traumatic Mm -hmm. events in their lives and processing how to tell that story for themselves so they can carry forward you know in a positive way and I actually have a little bit of a difficulty with the nomenclature between this kind of storytelling and that kind of storytelling. Oh, so, <laughs> yeah. You want me to try to sure. say what I think? Well, I mean, th- uh, this kind of storytelling, which I'm, w- let's say that's the one where the young people are telling their mm-hmm. story, is really, um, I would call it a psychological skill. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a abil- an ability that's context-dependent, so there are supportive environments in which to do it and unsupportive environments in which to do it, right? Uh, so that's what I mean by context-dependent. Uh, you know, certain people encourage you, certain people discourage you, certain settings make you feel safe to do it, certain settings don't, right? Certain settings incline you toward it, certain settings don't. Um, 
uh, and then it's a skill to sort of stop and pull the pieces together and think about not just the pieces, but how they integrate and what that integration means, right? So that's what I would say is mm -hmm. what young people are trying to do when they've been traumatized, yes. things like that. That's what therapy so is all about. it's a learned behavior. It's a learned way. thing. That's right. It's a it learned skill. Well, it does come naturally. Like all skills, they start with a basic form that comes naturally, but you can, you know, refine those yeah. given certain kinds of cultural mm -hmm. and other kinds of needs, experiential needs, right? And then the other kind of story is closely related, but not the same thing, and it's kind of story with a capital S. It's like when we do this collectively, what do we produce that's this beautiful piece of art, narrative art, you might call mm -hmm. it, that gets, uh, you know, that represents our culture, represents our collective thinking, our collective sort of meaning making and experience, and that gets translated and retranslated and passed along as a sort of uh, meme for the meaning and the experience that we had. Um, so they're related, yeah. but they're they they're 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 different in sort of how they're encapsulated and defined and where they their boundaries are. Yeah, amazing. Shall I read one? Yeah, yeah. Your turn. Uh, submitted by Catherine Davy. I love everything you said about hope and its interpretation of a possibility. Have you conducted any research specifically on hope and its importance to young people, whether it's in the media or elsewhere? Oh, gosh. Um. Catherine, my gosh. Okay. Uh, do you know her too? <laughs> no, I don't. No. <laughs> so, pardon if I do. Like, I out of context. I'm Maybe. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm terrible with names. Faces, I'm great. Um, uh, there are people who have studied hope. Um, a lot of the work on hope is embedded in spirituality uh, and other kinds of research mm -hmm. in those veins, right? Um, what we've been studying is not so much hope specifically, but how young people build um, the kinds of emotions that hope is one of, right? So these kind of broad, uh, what you might call existential emotions that are inferences that hold together, you know, kind of intentions or qualities of character or mind across situations that, you, that kind of transcend the essence of that situation and go with you in the world and help you make predictions and help you interpret history, um, make decisions. So... In that sense, we've been studying it because we watch kids do it. We tell them these, uh, these stories about mm -hmm. real kids from around the world who've done various things under various kinds of circumstances and ask them, how does this make you feel? And hope emerges spontaneously wow, and great. we watch that happen. So, so in that sense, we've been studying hope, but we don't come along and say, like, here, please feel hope. Or what do you feel? A, hope, B, joy, D, <laughs> gratitude, or C, nothing, right? And then, like, you know, check and then call it, like, a study. We're watching what kids actually do and trying to figure out where is it, you know? But it's interesting that you're saying that they are sponta spontaneously stating that they feel hope and hopefulness from hearing these inspiring stories. Yeah. So it's like maybe where I might expect them to say, I feel inspired or I feel impressed or I feel We awe. get all those I'm, I'm, things. It's awesome. You know, but mm -hmm. they're actually saying that that makes them feel hopeful. So I think yeah. that's a really, for me, that's valuable as a storyteller because it shows that when, you know, if we have a story of a character ex doing some, one of these heroic things that, mm -hmm. you know, real people do do, yep. um, that act, that the takeaway from that could be hopefulness for kids. Mm -hmm. It could. And one of the one of the things that we've learned about hope as compared to inspired, impressed, right, other kinds of emotions, we get those two, is that impressed, inspired is kind of ambiguous, it could be either way, right, but impressed um, is one of those emotions that you can have in relation to what you see someone doing, right, um, whereas hope 
by definition, is something that is extracted that rides above that, that you can't see directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have kids moving between them, and you start with impressed, and maybe some proportion of kids, and as they get older, more of them do it, become hopeful on top of that, right? So I remember one young woman who who was reacting to one of the stories like Malala, right? And she, and she was talking about that person, and then she said... She, like, paused into this whole, like, thing, and then she came back and said, like, she gives me hope for humanity, right? Mm-hmm. This incredibly broad statement. But that, you don't see hope for humanity in Malala. You mm-hmm. see Malala, like, battling the Taliban or whatever, right? And then you move beyond that. Um, and so we need space to move beyond that if we want our young people from them, their interactions with media. This gets at Alan's question, too, a little bit. If we want them to be able to build what we really would see as a kind of value-based hope that transcends that situation, it needs to go beyond being impressed with somebody's heroism. We actually have stories that are about heroism and stories that are about kind of moral virtue, mm-hmm. and we contrast them. And what we find is that interacting with heroism is very direct, and it's very, uh, it, they're both equally strong emotionally, but you don't really make these broad value hopefulness statements out of heroism. But from uh, values based kind of, you know, admiration for someone who really does something that shows true quality of character in mind, even if you can't Mm -hmm. see it directly in their actions, right? The civil rights leader marching down the street, there's nothing hard about marching down the street. There's nothing, like, impressive about that, unless you understand the whole circumstances under which it's happening, right? Being able to infer those circumstances, that's where we see hopefulness. And what's interesting is people get duck on the impressed one and they say like oh but I could never do that right you see somebody do something real like mm-hmm. save somebody from the burning building they're like wow that's a, that's so great but I couldn't do that right but when they see the civil rights leader almost no one out of like 180 people we've interviewed at this time ever says I could never do that they say wow. how would I that's be able great. to do that right what does that mean for me I've only had or what can I do that's right like what that? can I yeah. do that's like that in yeah. my life that's right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um do you want to read this question would you like to read it? Mike, read it. Read. Uh, submitted from Nick N. How does creating content to inspire empathy in viewers differ between target audiences, babies, young kids, older kids, teens, et cetera? Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like this would be a good, good, you talk about sort of content for each age, and if you know sort of yeah. research, yeah. Like how would you do that in each age? Sure. Um, well, I think that as you as you um, make content for older viewers, you're, we're no longer at that point sort of fine slicing a, a, a piece of curriculum and trying to deliver that specific thing. Mm, Whereas we might do a show for young, young um, preschoolers mm-hmm. where the curriculum of the show might be empathy. Mm. And, and it's actually sort of trendy right now that mm. there are preschool shows that yeah. inspire empathy for empathy, for mindfulness. Right. For you know, um, compassion, compassion, kindness. Right? Kindness mm-hmm. is a specific curriculum for certain shows. Mm-hmm. So when they're young, for the young kids, we tend to, as I said, sort of fine slice the curriculum mm-hmm. and and try to everything in the sh- in the show will re- will come back and reinforce that one mm-hmm. notion. Um, or we might do an episode. That, so then, as you get a little bit older, it might be now we're going to do an episode about that. You know, it's not going to be the whole entire series. Now this episode is going to focus on compassion. And then when you get older, it might be just we're putting working into scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, it's in the scene work of yeah. the writing. Um, because as, as a, you know, 15-year-old is unlikely to watch a television show that 
broadly announces itself to be about compassion or empathy or kindness, but you know, then it's then it's like subtly working with the writers sort of throughout the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so that's brilliant. That matches perfectly onto the, like what I would outline as the developmental trajectory. So in young babies and little children, right? It's about actions. It's about perceiving other people's actions and interpreting those empathically. Even newborn infants, um, you know, tend to cry when they hear another baby cry, right? It's this very direct kind of behavioral, Contagious motoric <laughs> empathy. Exa- exa- exactly. Any parent with twins knows this very, Anyone's very well. Anyone's been on an airplane right, exactly. at Thanksgiving. <laughs> okay, okay, I know you're no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and then as kids get older, the their emotional skills are really... You know, emotion and cognition are really not separate things. They're kind of two dimensions of thinking in a real, alive, awake person, right? Um, And I call this the Frankenstein problem, right? That, you know, following my friend David Daniel, who named it that, right? Where we try to pull people apart into little components and then... You know, but in education we have, or in media consumption, we have real whole people who have all of it there at once. And so in teenagers, what are they doing? We said before, they're trying to infer broader lessons about what you can't see. Like, what does it mean to be me, to be that person? Compassion has a very different meaning than empathy. Empathy is, can be very direct and even motoric, right? I see you hurt yourself and I go, Ugh, and I flinch on my own body, right? Whereas uh, compassion for some psychological circumstance, say something you know, something that's happened to you, somebody you lost, that kind of thing, that takes a lot of inference on my part. And I almost would be um, distracted by engaging directly with you in the moment where you're showing me that, right? And so in adolescence, what you want to do is embed it so that you start to notice and infer it across time from patterns of ways that people think and react and behave rather than directly, um, you know, uh, portraying it in a, in a concrete action-oriented sense, which doesn't make sense at that age anymore. There is no way to portray compassion as a teenager. I mean, any action I could say would be compassionate. It could also be done with the wrong mm-hmm. intention, and then it's not compassion at all. It's snide or, or even cruel, right? Because it pretends to be or condescending or, or fake condescending or, or fake <laughs> or any of those things, right? And, and adolescents are hyper-aware of yeah. that. Um, and so it needs to be genuine and it needs to be motivated by an intention that they can start to infer over time rather than by the direct actions of what you do. Now, does that mean they don't need skills for what to do? No, they need skills. They need skills for saying, no, I don't want to do that, right? Like, or I don't want to drink that or eat that or whatever, right? Or, you know, like they need those skills, but they also need an ability to sort of engage and infer what's underneath it. And so the programming has to reflect that or else you're dead in the water. I mean, if you did... You know, the kind of program you do for little kids, for adolescents, they would never watch you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, one more. I'm coming in for yes. one more. Yes, okay. <laughs> coming in. Remember these incredible books. And oh, this yeah. one is The Storyteller, written by it's Anthony. It's a storyteller. There yeah, we go. Exactly. We're talking about storytelling. It's yeah. perfect. We might keep it. It's no, you can't. by Anthony <laughs> It's McGill been pledged. With illustrations from Hannah Christensen and Eva Eskalenin. Um, yes, they're amazing books. There's an adult Mini Labyrinth books, Dark Crystal books. Yep. Oh, my gosh. Tale of, Tale of Sand and Fraggle Rock book. Yep. It's wow. a really nice collection of beautiful books. So if you're just tuning in, we've got... Someone's going to get those books. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Me, no. Yes. Lisa Henson, um, Mary Helen Imardino. Did I do it right? Yang. <laughs> Yang. Uh-huh. Um, and... Um, 
don't know why I have it in my head. See, I'm bad with names, too. No, it's good. And, it's fine. Um, they are talking about storytelling and empathy. Um, and I just wanted to make sure you guys hit the tween. Did you talk about tweens in the... Oh, we didn't really. Talk about tweens a little. <laughs> they sometimes get missed. And you may know the Sometimes for, get missed. Yeah, the you Center think? for Developing yeah. Adolescents. Um, there, there are people, Ron Dahl and a whole oh, bunch yeah. of people um, who are really trying to say that this is an important time period. It Huge. really is a critical Huge. time period. And we just really don't you know, think about, but there's not enough research on them and there isn't mm-hmm. enough storytelling on them. Um, and what can we, you know, mm-hmm. what do we do? What can, yeah. are the things mm-hmm. we can think mm-hmm. about? And mm-hmm. entertainment wise, it's been a little bit of a desert for, for tweens because, you know, it's the, the juggernaut of mm-hmm. uh, kids prime time, which is those sitcoms for on uh, certain channels, certain yeah. children's channels, okay. Um, okay, you know, very, very broad, very, very broad comedy mean. sitcoms that are, you know, they are not subtle, you know, but that, that, <laughs> <laughs> that's been so successful with tweens. And mm. I think that's what a lot of tweens have been watching. Um, and I, we don't produce those shows, so, so I actually can't say what kind yeah. of uh, interaction they have with, with research. But it's interesting because tweens are not um, subtle in their taste. You know, they, no, that's right. they, kind, they tend to like kind of broad things. Um, They've graduated from from the preschool programming, the gentle program. They like things that are broad and noisy, and 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 if in the cartoon side, you know, things in the school of SpongeBob SquarePants, which is like very noisy and fun, you know. So it's kind of like they they do like a certain amount of like chaos and craziness, and it's actually kind of particularly difficult, I think, to insert. You know, meaning, Meaningful compassion, <laughs> empathy into that type of programming. So, um, you know, we on our side, I think we have some hope with the fantasy s- stories that we tell. Something oh, like sure. Dark Crystal, which is an immersive fantasy world that the kids could um, project themselves a little bit into those characters. Um, but it's it, it's definitely a little bit of a of a challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think just to make a big um, statement about society, we kind of, these poor kids are called tween because they're in between, you know, children and teenagers. And most of the time what we do for them is either, like, try to give them teenager content and wonder why it upsets them. (laughs) That's a great point. Yeah, child content and wonder why they roll their eyes and think it's stupid. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a huge, like Ron Dahl's work shows, right, there's a huge amount of biological and cognitive and affective and social development that's happening in that age group. And they're, they're very labile emotionally. Any parent can tell you that. And hypersensitive to social mm-hmm. feedback. I mean, there's like silly, it's not silly, it, it, it seems silly, but it's, it's actually quite meaningful, right, work. Um, you know, on like risk taking, like balloon blow up games, right? That are very, you know, you pop the balloon or hmm. whatever games where like it's done in one condition with, um, you know, uh, a, a poster on the wall that's advertising, you know, something, I don't know what, sneakers or something. And then another condition where different kids do it and it's got um, eyeglasses being advertised on the wall. So there's just all these different eyes, like looking in different kinds of frames. If you even have an eyeglasses advertisement poster <laughs> on the wall, these kids do significantly worse in the, right? Younger kids don't notice, adults don't notice, but 
this age group really like their their performance goes hugely down because it's like who's looking at me it's like their brain is like somebody's watching me do this that's right? amazing yeah, see there's and, a great piece of research exactly, that we should all know about right. yeah. uh, you know and just watching i mean i remember with my own kids this isn't science this is anecdote both of my kids at like age 11 right in that tweeny part there was about a two-week period and it was very short and had i not been a neuroscientist i wouldn't have noticed where they were hyper aware of anybody looking at them I mean, right. we would sit at the dinner table and they'd be like, why is everybody staring at me? Why, why are you staring at me? Why is everybody staring at me? We're, like, we're just at the dinner table. Like, it's all face We're pointing in the, the same middle. direction. <laughs> <laughs> we're not staring. Okay, can you just pass me the bread? The bread? I'm not looking, but just could I have the potatoes? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, they were like, why is everybody looking at me? And then they would burst out laughing and then they would burst out sobbing. And I mean, it's like lots of change. And what we know is happening in the brain is that and we had missed this development for a long time. We're only now focusing on it because we didn't have the tools to be able to see it. The brain isn't really getting much bigger across this time period. In fact, it's getting a little smaller, uh, which Whoa. tells you something, right? Whoa. That it's reconsolidating. Yeah. So we were able to look and say, oh, the look, they, yeah, the they, mm-hmm. no, the actual brain is shrinking just a tiny bit. Yeah. Um, because it's settling in and it's pruning connections away. And what's happening is that we now know, or just starting to discover because we have tools for looking at what we call connectivity, the ways in which different parts of the brain are actually connected to each other by little threads of, uh, you know, tails of little neurons that can like send, you know, information around like uh, to communicate and also functionally by how they're like we can see how neurons over here firing is matched to those over there. And we can say, oh, they must be communicating or why would they not, you know, why would they be going at the same time? Um, and what we can find now is that there's a huge amount of shifting in the way the brain's networked organization is, is um, changing across adolescence, across this early period of adolescence mm. especially, where kids are moving from these very close-range connections that allow you to do things like move your fingers with high amounts of dexterity and things like that, to these broader, literally from the front to the back of the head connections that allow you to integrate and probably build these broader kinds of conceptual ways of thinking. But as those little neurons are finding their ways around, they're firing all over the place and trying it out, and it makes for a lot of noise. Um, so kids at That's that age... That's a really incredible idea. Yeah, I didn't know any of that. Yeah. And so kids at that age, probably they need a lot of engagement. They need a lot of agency and ownership. They need a lot of adults around you know, just being there, modeling how one maintains a composure as a reasonable human being. You know, just just, just let me just show you what it looks like, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes you even have to take them on your lap and be like, no, I'm really going to show you what it looks like. Like, let's sit here and talk about it for a little while, right? Um, and, then, and then they need chances to try it out and to build those kind of um, dispositions for regulating themselves in ways that help them learn to notice, learn to compose themselves, learn to engage, learn to stand back. You only learn those things by actually engaging them and doing them. They need a lot of do, 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 mm-hmm. and social safe ways um, at you that age. you know the concept invisible audience? That's yeah. a psychological construct yeah. at that age. Probably those two weeks, they think people are staring yes. at them. Yes. They created, That's constructed right. this invisible An audience. invisible right. audience. Right. Yeah, right. it's a Interesting. psychological construct. So, um, will you read this one for uh, Lisa? Sure. Lisa. around seven more minutes. From Laurel Felt. Lisa, you said that your engagement with researchers and their insights is usually a one-time thing. How can we deepen the relationship or share insights more effectively or frequently? Um, yeah, that's I, that. Uh, that is a very good question. Um, 
as I said, in our preschool shows, we have a curriculum side to every show, mm-hmm. and we have one or two or three consultants that will be on board for the entire season. So I think I may have um, misstated a little bit in saying that it's like a one-time thing. Um, It was as we were, I was thinking of the older Mm -hmm. kids Mm -hmm. um, or issue-oriented consulting. Mm -hmm. You know, there are things that we as producers, you know, we naturally have, you know, our inherent... um, the bias of being who we are, our age, our ethnicity, mm-hmm. our our everything, our privilege, so that when we're doing topics that are um, very different, you know, sometimes we just in, we just know that we need a consultant. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes that is a bit of a one-time thing. Like mm-hmm. we will find the mm-hmm. consultant on such and such. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I don't want people to be discouraged and think we just talk to people once and then goodbye. Mm-hmm. You know, if it, if you're a consultant on on a on a preschool show or or a show that has a specific subject matter that yeah. you would need to have a consultant mm-hmm. the whole way through it tends to be actually a lot of quite productive back and forth right. you know and we'll just you know we will engage with our you know the paid consultants that work on a series from beginning to end we're talking to them every week throughout the whole process I so i hope i didn't give completely the wrong perspective i was more thinking of the Kind of like the the research that we researchers researchers that we've been exposed to through Yalda through other um, you know when we ask to be when we ask to be introduced to a researcher for a certain topic yeah you know we will get their feedback and then kind of move on with that I see. Um, so anyway I don't want you to be too discouraged whoever <laughs> wrote that <laughs> Wait, Laurel five more minutes probably last question one of you can read it okay. <laughs> Ah, Lisa, submitted from Jamie Azar. Um, Lisa, you mentioned that this type of collaboration with researchers and consultants is new. What encouraged or inspired you to become active in this collaborative space? And Mary, I've noticed that studios often make business decisions that run contrary to research from a psychological perspective. Why might that be? <laughs> Interesting. That might be a Lisa question. Too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, the newness, I was specifically referring to this organization, Center for Scholars and Storytellers, where uh, Yalda is actively um, distributing research mm-hmm. results mm-hmm. to storytellers mm-hmm. and, um, and through a newsletter, mm-hmm. through events, through this type of um, event that we're doing right now, um, this kind of um, sort of attempt to... M- hook in with researchers on all different levels, yeah. not just our yeah. preschool yeah. Uh, curriculum consultant. Because yeah. <laughs> the preschool curriculum consultant has been around forever. Yes, so now we're right. just kind of, this is broadening the dialogue, really. Right. right. Um, and then for my question, uh, you know, why studios make business decisions, you could answer that better than me. <laughs> but why people do things that we know from you know, evidence-based approaches are probably going to lead to the contrary aim to the one they were hoping for, um, is for several reasons. First, we're remarkably uh, not good at predicting things outside our sphere of reference, right? Lots and lots and lots of work has shown that. Second, we oftentimes get 
what psychologists call primed. We're sort of set up by a context to think or decide in a particular way. Often in, in the context is shifting our behavior in a way that we're not conscious of and we don't reflect upon, we're not even aware of. Um, and so there's lots and lots and lots of research showing that too. Um, and then thirdly, in terms of producers, I can imagine there would also be some kind of uh, inherent, uh, you know, um, uh, break between the producer's own perspectives, like you said, and the perspectives of the people for whom they're producing the content. And they may not fully appreciate what the people, you know, consuming the content. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what I meant, consuming, yeah. not producing. Consuming the content may actually want or need or what their perspective would be. So maybe in that sense, you know, I'm an adult mm -hmm. and I think this is what you need, but I don't know you. And so I might be mm -hmm. mis, uh, mischaracterizing what you need. So that, that would be my three. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. kind of, I, I don't know, I don't exactly know what um, what the writer of the question, sorry, the scroll down so I can't see your name anymore. Um, I'm not exactly sure, you know, what, um, you know, what is the type of example that's being thought about. I mean, the one that's been discussed many times, it's been discussed in almost every event, every event I've had here with this organization is um, 13 Reasons Why. You know, so there are certainly times when, you know, it's just it's so debatable that from day one it's going to be engulfed in debate. And I'm sure the 13 reasons why people um, they probably didn't think they were doing it perfectly from the beginning because it was so fraught with with um, with pro with problematic questions. But so to say, like. Did they do it for a business reason and then misstep psychologically, or did they actually not even misstep because there are there's yeah. you know research both ways on that? So I actually um, I'm not exactly exactly sure what the mm. you know <laughs> what the desired question I mean, is. You all to help us out. Yeah, <laughs> I would say I think the artist. Um, hello. Um, I think I don't know. Can you see me if I stand up? Okay. I think. A lot of times business people say, and I think it's true, freedom of expression, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, we have to let artists, um, you know, tell the stories that they feel they're going to tell. And, and even like, you know, video game violence, for example, sure. for mm -hmm. years, everybody was like, oh, video games, video games, they lead to violence. Now the consensus is, the scientific consensus is actually the opposite. We have now determined and we believe that it isn't. So science is also, as you said, we don't really know. So the question is, if you're letting artistic freedom and market forces, obviously people give the people what they want, um, sort of speak, and we do know like fear and we have a negativity bias and things like that, fear-based sort of grabs your attention, then what can you, what can the responsible producer, distributor, storyteller wrap around the content that will help those vulnerable youth? Like so in the 13 Reasons Why, there were probably some youth that were triggered, but the majority of youth weren't. So how can we, how can we, what can we do in today's world with today's technology to, to help be more responsible? And I don't have the answer. <laughs> That's for another time. Well, the other question is really are those, the question says, why do studios make business decisions? And I, I would question whether those are really business decisions or if those are, as you said, um, creative decisions that are being, you know, kind of endorsed by studios because, you know, because either they want to let that artist say what they have to say. I think, I think you're more right that might be driven a little bit more by 
you know, freedom of speech, mm-hmm. freedom of expression, mm-hmm. and um, in some cases, really just the traditions of what we think is good entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's very funny. I'm, um, I'm the release of the Irishman (laughs) (laughs) caused me to take up a very unpopular view recently, which is I've said, you know, I'm just, I don't want to see any more shows about likable hitmen. Mm -hmm. And I, and I feel like this is, this is just a, it's, it's a tradition now. We have a tradition of a likable hitman. Mm -hmm. Why does this tradition have to exist? Mm -hmm. It's a loathsome, disgusting thing. Mm -hmm. So why do we cast wonderful actors who we love Mm -hmm. as hitmen? You know, Mm -hmm. why do we make comic montages of them Mm -hmm. killing Mm -hmm. people? And it's not just that movie, it's just everything about... <laughs> you just watch The Joker, and you know, so, made a billion dollars. <laughs> so, it, but it's, that's, bec- that's like a, you know, that is a tradition at this point. Like, going back to my folklore and mythology background, mm-hmm. like, that is a story that we tell in America, that you could be a hitman with a heart, you know. But I, 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 I would tend to think that doesn't exist, the hitman with the heart, and, <laughs> and that it's a destructive myth. Mm-hmm. So, you know... But I also don't think that the entertainment companies are irresponsible to make those movies at this point because it's so much a part of our culture. But there are interesting questions to be asked. That concludes this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. A very special thanks to Dr. Mary Helen Imordino Yang and Lisa Henson for joining us in that conversation. If you have a minute, rate and review us. And if you have any friends who you think would like the show, share it with them. If you're interested in learning more about our work, please visit us at scholarsandstorytellers.com and follow our social media accounts by searching Center for Scholars and Storytellers. A special thank you to Jim Ools for creating the intro music. This podcast was produced by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers with special thanks to the UCLA Film School and Nir Liebenthal. Goodbye for now, and thank you for listening.